Chapter 2 William Hart stepped gingerly across the threshold of the flying boat's door. Even though the plane had landed a fair distance out into the bay, way beyond where the big rollers formed and broke, there was still a significant swell to the sea, rocking the keel of the aircraft so that it was difficult to keep his balance without holding on to the door jams. The pilot had hooked some steps over the bottom lip of the doorway and down the side of the plane. William stood on the top step. Below, tossing about in the waves, he could see a large dugout canoe with a single outrigger float to one side. All around, the ocean was alive with dozens of other craft, dugouts and canoes of all sizes, some with outriggers, others with sails, some with both, some with neither. The whole population of the island seemed to have turned out to meet him, and indeed this wasn't far from the truth, although they were not there to meet him since they hadn't had any idea he was coming. The monthly visit of the plane was enough in itself. The first thing he noticed was that they were all almost naked, the mass of light brown flesh scarcely dotted with clothing. The women were in short grass skirts, their bare breasts bobbing around with the movement of the boats in which they sat, or more commonly stood, the better to get a look at them, he supposed. The men wore only what appeared to be a piece of leaf held over their genitals by a string which traveled between their legs and buttocks to another around the waist, like a stripper's g-string. They were of every age, old men and women, small children, teenage boys and young women whose nipples peeped between the lays, the garlands of richly colored flowers of welcome they wore around their necks, presumably for the pilot as they couldn't be for him. All seemed to be pointing up to him and saying the same thing. Gwanga, Gwanga, chattering away like the monkeys whose lives they so respected. Although, of course, William Hart knew nothing of that yet. He had done his research on the island, but none of it had to do with the culture or customs of its people. His interest in the place lay elsewhere. As the whine of the plane's motors ceased and its propellers gradually stopped turning, the hubbub swelled until it seemed to fill all the space in William's head so that he had no room to think. Gwanga, Gwanga, is make jump! He looked down and saw a young man, probably in his late teens, looking back up at him from the large dugout, which was now alongside the plane, level with the door, its outtrigger perilously close to the plane's port wing float. The man was holding a hand up to him. Fortunately, William had the presence of mind to remember his suitcase. He reached inside the plane and somehow hefted it over the rusty metal lip of the door. He turned and looked at the native. "'Is please chuck bag, Gwanga!' yelled the youth, struggling to make himself heard over the din. The dugout was lurching up and down in such a way that William hesitated. He caught himself squeezing the handle of the bag, first with one hand and then the other. His anxiety level was high. It would be a disaster if his bag missed the boat and plunged into the sea. Even supposing it was possible for it to be recovered, everything inside, the papers, his books, and the tape machine, would be destroyed and his whole mission aborted before it had even begun. Just drop it, Mr. Hart, said a voice behind him, and he turned to see the Australian pilot who had flown him here. They'll catch it before it can sink. William let go the case which landed in the outstretched arms of the youth, who made a sound like air escaping from a punctured tear, as it knocked the breath out of him and he collapsed under its weight into the waist of the boat, where he lay flattened beneath it, while his fellow boatmen dropped their oars and struggled to lift it from him. "'Come on, Mr. Hart, I don't have all day,' said the pilot. "'I gotta get back before nightfall. Here, jump!'
and with that he gave William a firm push between the shoulder blades. William's arms wheeled through the air as he flew down and shut his eyes, anticipating the splash as he hit the water, but was pleasantly surprised to feel solid wood beneath his feet. He almost toppled over, but several pairs of hands grasped him, and a moment later he was sitting in the stern of the boat facing the nodding and smiling faces of the eight oarsmen, and feeling stupid as he nodded and smiled back. Somehow the boat was already well stacked with wooden crates and cardboard boxes from the plane, and the rowers were pulling for the shore. Behind him he could hear the aircraft's engines spluttering once more into life. Guanga, said the boy who had caught his case. William shook his head and put on a puzzled expression to show he hadn't understood. Guanga, said the boy again, dragging his fingers through his short black hair and nodding at William. He frowned when he saw that William still didn't get it. He repeated the gesture with hand in the hair, and William wondered whether this was simply an idle movement or had some relevance to what he was saying. Guanga, Guanga! Again, William shook his head. What is Guanga? he asked, not knowing if he would be understood. Guanga? said the boy. You is not know? You is be Guanga. You! Ha <laughs> ha! You is not know a Guanga, and you is be Guanga. He roared with laughter and turned to his comrades. Guanga is not know what Guanga is. Is you can believe it? He is be Guanga and is not know it. They all collapsed laughing over their oars, and one man let go of his and had to be held by his legs by his comrades while he stretched out over the rocking side of the boat to reclaim it. After that, they settled back into their rowing, but their steady rhythm was nonetheless punctuated from time to time by many cries of Guanga and a great deal of laughter during the 15 minutes it took to row to shore. William laughed too. It seemed only polite. And as they appeared to like this, he even ventured to tap himself on the chest a couple of times and say, Guanga, which made them all roll about and the boat pitched so violently that it, had it not been for the out trigger, it would have capsized. Between bouts of laughter, William raised his eyes to look at the place that was to be his home for the next month. After a border of bright yellow sand fringed with the white of the surf, brooding emerald hills rose in the center. A solitary white cloud hung above the island, as if put there to emphasize how blue the rest of the sky was. A travel agent's paradise, thought William, except it was 300 miles from anywhere that wasn't another nowhere, had no landing strip, and was reachable only by seaplane, and was rumored to be well short of modern conveniences. Still, at least there was a hotel, as far as William had been able to see from the old British map he'd dug up, assuming it was still there. He certainly hoped so. After three days of traveling, he was ready to wallow in a long, hot bath. As the boat came closer to shore, William realized that the men had ceased laughing in order to put all their energy into their rowing. He could tell from their strained expressions that the going was getting harder all the time, and he deduced that this was because of an undertow. The now fairly big waves broke upon the wall of the coral that ringed the shore and bounced back out from it so that for every ten feet the men rode, the boat was hurled back five. At times it even seemed as if they were thrown back further than they had rowed since the last time, but this must not have been the case as finally they managed to get past the undertow and were riding on the crest of a huge breaker, the oarsmen paddling frantically to steer the craft through a gap in the coral reef and surfing in on a cauldron of white spray which finally spat the boat out onto a sickle-shaped sandy beach. For a moment, the men rested over their oars, panting. "'Are you all right?' William ventured, 
as after a couple minutes, not a single one of them have moved from this posture of exhaustion. That seems to have been an exceptionally hard row. Hard row, gasped his youth. Not bloody damn likely. Too much damn casa last night. As William disembarked into the foaming water swirling around the boat, he cursed himself for wearing his loafers, his white tropical suit too. Anyone with any sense would have known to have worn something waterproof. Sea boots or plastic flip-flops, most likely. He went to reach his bag out of the boat, but the boy said to him, No, Gwanga, I is fetch. While the oarsman unloaded the boat, putting the contents higher up the beach where the sand was dry, then pushing the vessel's laden keel out of reach of the waves, William was surrounded by natives. The crowd parted to allow a trio of smiling young women, each wearing an exotic lay around her neck, to step forward. Once in front of him, they removed the lays and placed them over William's head. He peered over multicolored petals at six bare brown nipple breasts. He was conscious that he ought not to stare at them, but on the other hand, breasts seemed to be everywhere he looked. Fortunately, the problem was solved by the crowd closing up and engulfing him again. Now he felt bare breasts pressed against him, but at least they were too close for him to be caught looking at them. Gwanga, Gwanga, the people were calling. Welcome, Gwanga. The air was close and oppressive, and William was starting to feel claustrophobic when the pressure of bodies against his own eased and the crowd parted once more, forming two lines facing one another and making a kind of walkway. Rather like crowds of people waiting outside a film premiere, William couldn't help but thinking and he found himself staring at two people at its opposite end. They were a bizarre couple. One was an old man, maybe around 60, wearing only the ubiquitous pubic leaf and sporting below his right thigh an artificial limb, attached by leather straps that ran all the way up to a belt around his waist. Beside him, breast covered by a proper dress, a smart pale green western cocktail dress, and it appeared from their shape encased in a bra underneath was the strangest-looking woman. She had big, bushy eyebrows and a five-o'clock shadow. William presumed he was looking at the island's chief and his wife. He decided the proper thing to do would be to walk towards them, but when he lifted his suitcase, he remembered how heavy it was. He had to use both hands and shuffle along the gauntlet of smiling natives, the bag banging against his shins. The chief and his wife walked towards him. William was about to speak, but the chief held up his hand in the manner of a policeman stopping traffic. Strange, thought William, how some gestures are universal to the human race, wherever we live, whatever our culture. Then again, it occurred to him, he was just assuming that the guy was telling him not to speak. What if the gesture didn't have the same meaning here? What if, for example, it meant, hey everybody, give it half a minute, then grab this guanga and cut his dick off? But wait. The old guy was clearing his throat and starting to say something. Sir, I invite your highness and your train to my poor cell, where you shall take your rest for this one night. Which part of it I'll waste with such discourse as, I not doubt, shall make it go quick away. William knew immediately that his dick was safe. This was definitely a welcome speech. And more than that, even though he could make neither head nor tail of it, it had a certain elegance about it that suggested the old guy was intelligent and cultured. Had William been more cultured himself, he would have recognized it as Prospero's offer of hospitality to the shipwrecked Alonzo in the Tempest. But he wasn't, and he didn't, so was confused by the look of puzzled disappointment that flickered across the old guy's face. 
Instead of replying with an apt tidbit of Jacobian verse, then, William did things the American way. He stretched out his hand to shake. This had the effect of making the old man appear even more puzzled. He studied the hand for a moment, as though it were an object divorced from the rest of William, then looked at him in the face and smiled. Come, he said imperiously. William went to pick up his case, but before he could do so, the chief's wife beat him to it and grabbed the handle. Although she was only young, William would have guessed, seeing her up close now, that she was no more than sixteen or seventeen. Only a girl, really, and of slight build. Her shoulders were surprisingly muscular. She hefted the heavy bag as though it weighed nothing at all. I is take, she said in a gruff voice. Are you sure? asked William. It's very heavy. For you, Gwanga, maybe, but not for me. I is carry fish catch. William considered this for a few steps. Interesting that the chief's wife engaged in menial labor. It was hard figuring out the pecking order here. The chief watched his wife struggling with the case for a moment, then said to William, Beg is be plenty heavy. Yes, said William. What you was having there? asked the old man. William didn't know quite how to reply to this. On one hand, he didn't want to be rude. On the other, he didn't want to divulge too much too soon of his reason for being here. He shrugged nonchalantly. Oh, this and that. This and that, murmured the old man slowly as though chewing it over. Is must be heavy, this and that. And then suddenly, books is be heavy. You is have books? William wondered for a moment if they had somehow got wind of his visit but then dismissed the thought as absurd. Yes, one or two, he said. One or two, said the chief, nodding to himself. Beside him, the butch girl clutching the case had broken into a sweat and was looking daggers at the old guy, obviously willing him to get a move on. The chief suddenly stuck his face into William's. Any Shakespeare? Complete works by chance? William shook his head. Not even Hamlet? Not even Hamlet on he own? Sorry, not even Hamlet. Bugger, said the old boy and turned and limped off. The girl panted after him. William felt abashed at his own lack of gallantry and tried to grasp the case's handle to take it from her, but she pushed him off with such a surprisingly strong arm that he realized she was better equipped to carry it than he. Maybe I should try hauling fishnets as a method of bodybuilding when I get back to the States, he thought. They moved slowly, following a pace behind the old man's labored limp. William assumed as a matter of protocol, although actually it was because Tigua found the case a good deal heavier than he'd let on. The gaggle of islanders surrounded them every step of the way, some of them reaching out occasionally to touch William, as if he were a religious statue perhaps, tentatively, as though full of awe. It struck William as strange that, given the island boasted all the desirable young women who had waggled the breast at him, the chief should have chosen this butch specimen as his partner. Unless, of course, William had got it wrong and she wasn't his wife, but perhaps his daughter. That would make more sense, given their relative ages. William decided he had to get a handle on things. He remembered the traveling salesman line when a housewife opened the door to him in the good old days. Excuse me, miss, is your mother home? And decided to go at the matter from the same angle. Forgive me for asking, but are you the chief's daughter? Tigwa burst out laughing. What, said William, have I said something funny? You're not his daughter, you're the chief's... 
Before he could get any further, the old man turned and said, I is be Managua. I is not be chief. You're not the chief, repeated William. I'm sorry, I assumed. We is have no nobles here, said Managua in a stately voice. Nobles, said William. Chiefs, explained Managua. We is have no chiefs. I is come meet you because I is speak English good, most good of anyone on island. I is speak language of Shakespeare. Now I is take you village. As Managua resumed walking, William went beside him to take full advantage of the opportunity for conversation that had opened up, leaving Tigua lugging the suitcase a pace behind still. On the subject of language, he said, perhaps you can tell me, what does it mean, Guanga? Managua stopped again and turned to face him, eyes twinkling. Guanga? Is mean white man with yellow hair who is dropped from sky with heavy bag, he said. That's what Gongo means? Just one word means all that? Managua resumed walking. Is be one of things Gwanga is mean. Is mean many other things, too. Is be very thrifty language we is have here. Is not waste words with they is mean just one thing.